Good afternoon, Eye on the Triangle. Welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's February 24th, the time is 4.04, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Marathadonna Storg, bringing you Eye on the Triangle on this stormy, tornado-ridden day. This week, we are celebrating African American History Month at the trail end of February. This week, Cameron Dolacek interviews Neil Grantham, one of WKNC's very own DJs, about his research in statistics and how it may solve a future crime in this week's Explain It to Me Like I'm 88. And Jamie Holla traces the history of hip-hop from the Sugar Hill Gang to Chief Keef. Marissa Jordan brings us a look at the news around North Carolina, and our newest contributor, Ricky Dowles, shares her thoughts on the Raleigh Police Union holding a vote on whether or not to protest the Beyonce concert. We'll have the community calendar from Peter Spazzini, and as always, Saif Hassan brings you the news beyond the headlines. I'm Saif Hassan, and this is your news beyond the headlines. The operator of the Fukushima nuclear power plant hit by a tsunami in 2011 has admitted that it should have been announced sooner that there was a nuclear meltdown at the site. The Tokyo Electric Power Company denied the meltdown for two months. The company now says the public declaration should have been done within days of the disaster. Experts have long said the melting began within hours of the reactor being struck by the tsunami. For the first time, the company, known as TEPCO, admitted there were clear internal regulations stating when a meltdown should be declared, when damage to the reactor core exceeds 5%. The company told Japanese authorities that damage to one of the reactor cores had already passed 50% three days after the disaster, but continued to deny it publicly for two months. TEPCO says it will investigate why the procedures were not followed. The meltdown at Fukushima in March 2011 happened because the plant lost power after it was swamped by the tsunami. It lost the ability to cool the nuclear reactor, leading to an explosive buildup of heat and gas. This was the worst nuclear accident since Chernobyl in 1986. Some 160,000 people were evacuated from surrounding areas in the following weeks, and continuing high radiation levels mean most of them have never been able to return home. Japan gradually shut down all the country's nuclear plants after the disaster, Three reactors have now been restarted under new safety rules despite strong public unease, two in Sendai and one in Takahama. In Syria, the UN has carried out its first airdrop of aid to help civilians in an eastern city besieged by ISIS militants. UN aid chief Stephen O'Brien told the Security Council that the plane dropped 21 tons of humanitarian items on a government-held part of Deir al-Zur. Initial reports indicated that the aid had successfully reached the target area, Mr. O'Brien said. The UN says 200,000 civilians are living under siege in Deir al-Zur. In a recent report, the UN said that those trapped in the besieged areas were facing sharply deteriorating conditions with reports of severe cases of malnutrition and deaths due to starvation. Last week, more than 100 trucks carrying food and other basic goods reached 80,000 people in five other besieged areas of Syria. Two more convoys were sent to two towns besieged by government forces on Tuesday. Convoys are considered the most efficient form of delivery for much-needed supplies. The World Food Program had previously ruled out humanitarian airdrops in Syria due to the complexities of obtaining use of airspace, organizing distribution on the ground, and finding suitable drop zones. The United Kingdom government also said airdrops were high-risk and should only be considered as the last resort when all other means have failed. But Jan Edgeland, who chairs a humanitarian task force, said last week that the strategy was the only way to help feed people in Deir al-Zur. The UN estimates that more than 480,000 Syrians are living in besieged areas, with 4 million more people in hard-to-reach areas. 
Last week, convoys of aid reached rebel-held Muadhamiya, Madaya, and Zabadani near Damascus and pro-government northern villages of Foa and Kefraya. The supplies are expected to last for about a month. All sides in the civil war are believed to have used siege warfare in which forces surround an area and cut off essential supplies in breach of international law. A temporary ceasefire is scheduled to take place across Syria on Saturday after midnight Damascus time. This excludes ISIS and the Al-Qaeda-linked Nusra Front. The Syrian government has said it will observe the partial ceasefire, but insists it will continue to fight ISIS, al-Nusra, and other terrorist groups linked to them. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines. There are 250 million square feet of available real estate in North Carolina, most of which would be an ideal host for solar panels, according to a report released this week by Environment North Carolina. Data included suggests the flat, often unshaded roofs of big box stores would make the perfect location. David Rogers with the organization says much of that resource is going unused, largely because of the lack of state policies which would encourage the installation of solar. He says it would impact the state's sole power provider. It takes the production power out of Duke's hands, and the way Duke's business model is, they make most of their money by building new power plants and allowing these companies to produce their own power hurts Duke's bottom line. Specifically, Rogers says the state should allow for third-party financing of installations, reduce fees for large generation installations, and change metering policies to better support large installations. Currently, Duke is investing $500 million to expand solar energy in the state, but only in Duke-owned facilities. Rogers says in addition to benefiting the environment, the cost savings generated by retailers saving on energy could ultimately impact what you pay at the checkout. Anybody who's walked into a Lowe's or has walked through the refrigeration aisle of a grocery store notices how much money spent on heating, cooling, and lighting these giant stores. So being able to save what will translate to tens of thousands of dollars for any one of these stores means that some of those cost savings could be passed on to consumers. If fully utilized, the roofs of mega retailers would generate more than 2,000 megawatts of power which is equal to the amount of power consumed by more than 258,000 homes. It would offset the amount of electricity the stores use by 42%, according to the report. IKEA in Charlotte has already installed solar panels, and Target and Aldi chains have plans to do the same. Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Hello and welcome to this segment of Explain It to Me Like I'm 88 where I bring in PhD students from around NC State to explain their research in a way that people who are unfamiliar with the field will understand. Today, we're going to hear from Neil Grantham. His research in statistics may just help solve a future crime. My name is Neil Grantham. I'm a fourth-year PhD statistics student here at NC State. Neil is also one of our very own WKNC DJs. I am. I am. Um, I DJ Tuesday, 5 to 6 p.m. My DJ name is Voyager 3. Neil, what first led you to want to study statistics? That's a, I get that question a lot, actually. Um, I'd, oh, I've always really liked math, and um, when I went to, um, I'm here for grad school, and so when I went to uh, Cal Poly, it's out in California, uh, for undergrad, I was a math major and got kind of uh, disenchanted with 
the theoretical math that just seemed a little too abstract. I, I, I enjoy it from a observer's perspective, but um, I wasn't really any good at it, to be honest. Um, but I took a statistics class, and it was kind of the applied math that I wanted. It very much seemed like problem solving with data that you can get. And, and the it just seemed that there were so many possibilities with this, and I just got really enthusiastic about it and um, ended up applying to grad school because I felt like there was still so much more I could learn. And uh, that's, how, that's how I stumbled into it. More specifically in statistics, what do you study? Yeah, uh, my specific research, um, it's called spatial statistics. And all that's, it's a fancy word for saying we deal with data that's collected um, over space. So, I mean, the simple examples, there's air pollution monitoring stations across the country, but they're only at certain points. But you want to know what the pollution is like everywhere. Um, so you want to be able to get that information when it's available and use it in some sort of meaningful way to get an idea of what the pollution is like everywhere where you don't have data or days that you don't have data or that kind of stuff. But you're not studying pollution, so what more specifically in spatial statistics are you researching? Yeah, I started off looking at pollution, but I eventually got on this uh, kind of tangential project, which uh, I got really, really interested in, and it's kind of become my main um, focus now, which is uh, something called the microbiome um, in biology is essentially if you wipe any surface, there are thousands of bacteria and fungi in that dust. Um, and it turns out that across the country, if you swab, say, your outer door frame or certain areas, there are thousands of those bacteria and fungi, and they differ very much geographically across the country, um, which was something that nobody was really quite certain on. And this is a big data set that the biology department here um, collected. It's uh, over 1,000 different homes from across the country. We've got information about what bacteria and fungi live there. So our project was, if you know the bacteria and fungi in a particular sample, can you then back predict where you think it's from in some sort of forensic sense? Can you exploit the spatial you know, distribution of these bacteria and fungi to then make your best prediction about where something came from? So you get a swab from an unknown place, and then it's your research to try to predict where that came from? Yeah, and you can think of it, I mean, that's, that's how we're building our model, but you can think of maybe a package arrives with no return address, and, you know, it's, it maybe uh, looks like a dangerous package or something like that. You want to figure out maybe where it got mailed from. Or, you know, you have, there's a crime scene, and there's some piece of evidence like the mud on a boot that you don't know where that's from. Can you swab that and then back trace where it likely came from? Um, it's kind of those settings. So we have to build our database by swabbing things that we know where they're from. Um, but then we want to per turn it around and be, you know, use it on the situations where we have no idea. The biology department took all these samples from all across the U.S. And I assume you're not dealing, you know, physically with the samples. It's probably been converted into numbers for you to use. What what are you actually doing with those numbers? How is that useful? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, this is this is an interesting statistics problem um, because there's basically a lot of data here. We've got 1,000 homes, but each of these homes has, you know, anywhere, there's about 50,000 possible fungi that might live in a particular sample. So it's, it's kind of this big, massive problem you have to deal with. Um, and so what we're trying to do in our research is... Um, uh, build statistical models that identify very um, common regions for particular fungi and bacteria. And then when we get a new sample that has a bunch of these different species, we can then kind of weight it and move around our predictions on the country 
based on you know which species are or are not present in the sample. So to me, it's a whole bunch of zeros and ones. Um, you know, this is big giant binary thing of is this species present or not? Is this species present or not? Is this species present or not? And it turns out that even data of that form is very, very, very meaningful in in, in characterizing basically where these different um, species live. And I assume you're you're not doing this by hand, pen and paper, right? No, no, <laughs> no. Thank, thank goodness, we've got a uh, computer software to do this. <laughs> where are you in this process, and where do you hope to go with this research? No, that's a that's a great question. Um, I'm I'm at the stage where we've got some really exciting results on a on a model that does enormously well in predicting um, where a sample's from. It turns out we can get within um, about. 50 miles of where a sample is likely to have come from, from anywhere across the country, which is, you know, it's not enough information to go knocking on somebody's door, um, but it is enough to get a very good idea where something came from regionally. It's kind of amazing that, that just the bacteria and fungi in a particular swab is enough to identify it within that, that small of a radius. Um, so my dissertation essentially is formalizing this model and making it in, into some sort of usable fashion. Um, Maybe if we have a you know database of these different bacteria and fungi distributions, and you can kind of um, churn any sort of sample through the through the model, it figures out which DNA is present, and then gives you some sort of information on where it's from. Neil, thank you so much for coming in and doing this interview for explain it to me like I'm 88. Yes, thank you, Cameron. And uh, if you want to hear my musical taste, <laughs> tune in Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m. on Voyager 3. My name is Cameron Dolacek. Thank you so much for listening. Queen Bee has been busy. Right after the release of her Formation music video, Beyonce performed a controversial halftime show at the Super Bowl. Ever since, the whole country has been up in arms because of what they think she's saying about the police. I've heard things like, Beyonce is attacking the police and she supports the Black Panthers, so she must be anti-police. And honestly, that's not the message of her performance at all. But I'll get to that in a minute. Police officers are all over protesting and refusing to work at her world tour concerts. Why? Well, because they believe the Black Panther image she portrayed during the halftime show was an attack against the police force. Allow me to explain why it's not. The Black Panthers, a.k.a. the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, was formed during America's Civil Rights Movement. It was originally founded to patrol the streets of black neighborhoods to protect the residents from racial attacks. Later, they adopted the philosophy of Malcolm X to improve African Americans' place in society. They weren't afraid to use violence to end racial oppression. We now know that probably wasn't the best way for them to go about things, but personally, I can see where they saw no other way. The Panthers did not lead with violence, they reacted with violence. And because of this, the true history of the Black Panthers is often drowned out. They actually made great contributions to Black community. They established free food programs, including the free breakfast program that we've come to know today, and health clinics for people who couldn't afford medical care. They also provided transportation so that adults could get to work, and a community center for Black youth to promote their message of self-love, pride, and unity. Now, here are the top three myths you believe about the Black Panthers. Myth number one... The Black Panthers hated white people. Actually, they were the only black cultural group that did not think every white person was an oppressor. Of course, this was the 1960s, so there were going to be racist white people. But they also realized that there were white people who didn't feel the same way. In fact, 
The Panthers often teamed up with them. That's right. There were white supporters of the Black Panthers. Myth number two, the Black Panthers stood only for their own agenda. Many people like to criticize the Black Panther Party like they do the Black Lives Matter movement because they feel like it ignores all other forms of discrimination. They say, Black people aren't the only ones being discriminated against. It happens to Native Americans, to Asians, to Muslims, and the list goes on. And they'd be right. Discrimination happens to all minorities, and the Black Panthers were just as aware of this. Even though they were an African-American party, the Panthers spoke out against the discrimination and oppression of all minority groups. Myth number three, the Black Panthers are like the Ku Klux Klan. Milwaukee County Sheriff David A. Clark Jr. said, if a white band came out in hoods and white sheets in the same sort of fashion, would that be acceptable? No, we would be appalled and outraged. Well, Sheriff, you're absolutely right. Except the KKK is a hate group founded on the principles of hate and discrimination. The Black Panther Party was founded as a reaction of racial oppression in America in the 1960s. They never proactively killed a white person. If they killed, it was in self-defense. The Black Panther Party never looked down on the white race. The Black Panther Party never sought to eliminate the white race. It's like comparing apples to meatloaf. But back to Beyonce. You know what I say? The sinking police car, the dancing boy in front of the policeman, stop shooting us graffiti on the wall. Beyonce is taking a stand against police brutality in America. She's not making an attack on police officers as a whole. And in looking for something that isn't there, you've missed her true message entirely. She's emphasizing that despite the racial tensions in America, she still feels powerful and proud of her black heritage. She's not saying that all police officers are bad people. I'm sincerely sorry for anyone who interprets it that way. Every single man or woman who risks their life for us, I respect and applaud you for the job you do. I can't imagine what it's like to be in your shoes in this racially tense time in America. But if you must take meaning from her performance, take away the fact that she's proud of her African-American heritage and wants others to feel that same empowerment. Her depiction of the Black Panthers during the Super Bowl halftime show does not mean that she's anti-police. That wasn't what they stood for. Sure, they supported violence and self-defense in the case of police brutality and racially motivated attacks. But at the root of it all, Black Panthers stood for black pride and unity. Beyonce's performance helped to send out the message that black people can be proud to be black. And just because she promotes the pro-black movement doesn't mean that she's anti-white or anti-police. You don't have to tear someone else down to build yourself up. And that's what I feel like Beyonce's critics are saying. But hey, that's just what I say. Do you agree? Do you have a different view? Well, share your opinion. Until next time, this is Ricky Dowles of Eye on the Triangle. Hip-hop started in New York City, particularly the Bronx in the 1970s, where it was typically used as an alternative to the hard street life that permeated the Bronx at that time. The youth of the day would often use graffiti, b-boying, DJing, and MCing as a new and safer way to spend their time and have fun. The genre really started to take off when three main DJs, African Bambada, Cool Herc, and Grandmaster Flash, started spinning at huge block parties. Watching the success of these parties, record labels started to get interested, and Sugar Hill Records released the song Rapper's Delight by a group of guys called the Sugar Hill Gang. 
Many would argue that this was one of the first mainstream hip-hop songs. From there, hip-hop only grew to larger and wider success with Run DMC, LL Cool J, The Beastie Boys, and more, releasing seminal albums that succeeded both commercially and critically. All of the aforementioned artists hailed from some part of New York City, effectively making New York the hub of hip-hop. The West Coast arguably first made its entrance into hip-hop in 1989 when N.W.A. released Straight Outta Compton, one of, if not, the hardest-hitting albums to be released at this time. After this, the West Coast started flourishing. A growing scene emerged with Dr. Dre releasing The Chronic and then Snoop Dogg with Doggy Style. Let's not forget to mention the late and great Tupac Shakur. With the West Coast hip-hop sound making huge waves in the hip-hop world, there was and still is a constant debate as to which coast created the best hip-hop. The West or the East with New York City and Notorious Big, Wu-Tang Clan, and Public Enemy. But the East and West Coast weren't the only ones making groundbreaking and important hip-hop. Just look at the South with Outkast and UGK, but they definitely didn't have the same hold that the East and West had in the 1990s. That is, until the beginning of the 2000s when Eminem from Detroit, Kanye West from Chicago, and Outkast from Atlanta started to get a lot more mainstream success, culminating with Outkast winning Best Album at the 2004 Grammys for the Speaker Box slash Love Below. With this victory and the burgeoning success of artists like Lil Jon and T.I., Atlanta became a place not only to watch, but a place to challenge the title as capital of the hip-hop. Throughout the 2000s, Atlanta kept pushing forth some of the most popular and trend-setting things in the hip-hop world, including Young Jeezy, Gucci Mane, and Waka Flocka Flame. All of this led to Atlanta becoming the center of hip-hop in the past five years. The influence of Atlanta on the hip-hop world and pop culture at large is all around us. Culturally, Atlanta has given us the hottest dances of 2015 with the dab and the whip. Grandmas were doing the dab. Rich white suburban kids in Wakefield, North Carolina were whipping into social media notoriety. It could be argued that the Atlanta trap scene was one of the biggest influences on the Chicago drill scene. There just might not be a cheap keef if they weren't a walk a flock of flame. The city has produced some of the most innovative and rising superstars in the scene with Young Thug and Future. Migos brought back the triple flow and a penchant for extremely simple, hook-centric songs. Then there are the huge artists looking to Atlanta for inspiration, such as Drake hopping on I Love McConan's Tuesday and Migos' Versace to make both songs some of the biggest in the world. Beneath the mainstream success of the Atlanta hip-hop world is the odd little underground world that is dominated by SoundCloud rappers making some of the most unique music in hip-hop. Tracks are filled with singy-songy auto-tune delivery and beats influenced by the trap sounds of Atlanta, both a slightly more relaxed vibe. One of the most essential factors to the underground scene is its sway over youth culture, as many of the artists are younger than 22, as well as their integration of streetwear, fashion, and culture that many of these artists exude. Some of the heavy hitters in Atlanta Underground include the aforementioned I Love McConan, Father, Lil Yachty, Playboy Cardi, and my personal favorite right now, Made in Tokyo. I would go so far as to say that Made in Tokyo will have the song of 2016 with Uber everywhere. Everybody loves Uber these days, and it's got the perfect chorus with the strong Atlanta ad-lib of skirt skirt. Expect this song to be everywhere soon. All of this isn't to say that other parts of the world aren't making strong hip-hop. The West Coast undoubtedly holds the cream of the crop still with Kendrick Lamar. Many would make the case that North Carolina's very own J. Cole is the king of the East. Even London is at its most well-represented, with grime artists such as Skepta and Stormzy really on the come up. Canada also holds one of the hottest, if not most popular rappers with Drake. 
No matter the place or area, hip-hop has quite possibly become the most prevalent genre in music right now, and the future is bright as ever for experimentation and talent for hip-hop. This has been Jamie Hollow with Island Triangle, and I'm not signing off. Right. Uh, and when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut, but how must I be looking at you from the face? Good afternoon. This is the Community Calendar, an Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events occurring on campus or around the Raleigh-Durham area for the upcoming week. First and foremost up on the schedule is tonight's basketball game against UNC, tonight at 8 o'clock at the PNC Arena. The Hope Community Church will be hosting an event called End It Movement in the Brickyard tomorrow at 1230. You may join the International Justice Mission at NCSU and the Hope Community Church in the Brickyard for the End It Movement. They will have a movement of silence and an opportunity to educate others on the topic. You may help them shine a light on modern-day slavery. There are currently 27 million people worldwide affected by modern-day slavery, and they want this to be a generation that ends it. They believe that awareness leads to action and that together they are a force for good. Wear a white t-shirt and help spread the word. I have not brought this event up in a while. It is the Carry Art Loop held on Final Fridays. This art crawl is at the end of each month from 6 to 9 p.m. Large crowds of art appreciators enjoy original art in their local art galleries, live music, and many other exciting must-see-and-do things. You may learn more about the Carry Art Loop at thecarryartloop.org. If you are looking for a general location, many of these art venues are found on South Academy Street, Cary, North Carolina. This event is open to the public. So there is quite a lot going on this weekend to make note of. There will be the dance marathon occurring this Saturday. The dance marathon at NC State's focus is to raise awareness and funds for the kids at the local Children's Miracle Network Hospital, Duke Children's Hospital, located in Durham, NC. As an organization, they strive to connect our campus through these efforts and demonstrate empowerment, passion, and limitless opportunity to make a difference. They stand and dance for 16 hours straight in celebration of all the kids that have worked so hard, and in turn, they have impacted our lives through their inspiration and heroic journeys. This time also brings together NC State students, the Raleigh community, the kids they support, and their families to have one big celebration without any worries or fear of the future. This dance marathon will be occurring this Saturday at 10 a.m. and ending Sunday at 2 a.m. In the Tally Student Union, you may register for the dance marathon at dmncstate.org. This Saturday, there will be an event called the Neil Patterson Presentation. In conjunction with a weekend workshop presented by the Triangle Potters Guild, NC State students and the public alike are invited for an evening presentation by this nationally known potter. Neil Patterson has been making pots for over 30 years. He has a BFA from the Cleveland Institute of Art and an MFA from Louisiana State University and studied at Cardiff University in Wales. He has been an artist in residence at the Clay Studio in Philadelphia. He taught at Tyler School of Art for 17 years and leads workshops nationally. He begins on the wheel and hand builds from thrown pieces. Neil aims to make pots that are beautiful to look at, comfortable to use, and with a texture that brings out the natural liveliness of clay. Neil and his wife Sandy maintain a private studio, Neighborhood Potters, in Philadelphia. For more about Neil and his work, you may visit sandyandneil.com. This presentation will be held at the Craft Center Saturday from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. and is open to the public. Last up on the community calendar is a event from the Pope Lecture Series titled Editor and Columnist Christopher Codwell. 
Christopher Codwell will deliver this year's Pope Lectures on the topic, The Future of Europe. Codwell, a senior editor at the Weekly Standard, is also the author of Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam, and the West. His essays, columns, and reviews have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and other publications. This event will be held Monday from 7.30 to 9 in 216 Poe Hall. And with that, I conclude this week's community calendar. I'm Peter Swazeni, wishing you all a great week ahead. I'm Ian Grice, and you're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC-FM Raleigh. Southwest Wake County is now under tornado warning. If a tornado touches down, know where to take shelter. Hide. Quickly. And we'd like to thank Jake Winters, Ricky Dows, Marissa Jordan, Cameron Golchek, Peter Suzeni, Nick Nick, what's your last name? Nick Weaver. My last name is Weaver. Thank you. <laughs> I know yours. <laughs> well, that tornado has taken all my has taken my brain away. Saif Hassan and Jamie Halla for contributing. As always, if you've heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know on Twitter at wknc-eot, and be sure to check out our blog at and podcast at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. But stay stay safe in the rain and tune in for live baseball coverage right here on WKNC FM Raleigh. And be sure to tune in on Friday at 10 a.m. to 12 a.m. We will be airing uh, the student government debate at that time. And the debate is tomorrow Tomorrow night, Thursday, February 25th at 6.30 p.m. in the Tally Governance Chambers. I will be one of the moderators, so come check out, be informed about your student body president candidates. Have a great Wednesday.